Across Distance. This is Episode 9, Renditions, Vocal Yellow Face, Delays. My name is Masi Asari. There are three parts to this podcast, a brief reading from a book on voice and sound, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our times, and an exercise or guidance for voice practice from an expert. This week, I begin by reading an excerpt from the book Tropical Renditions, Making Musical Scenes in Filipino America by Christine Bacaresa Balance. Then I'll be in conversation with theater scholar Donatella Galella. And to close, sound designer and composer Andy Evan Cohen shares some guidance for voice practice in the age of Zoom. I also want to give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music featured on this episode. First, a clip of the show tune Another Hundred People from the album The Story of My Life, Lea Salonga Live from Manila, and a clip of Conrad Ricamora and company performing The New Silk Road from the original cast recording of the musical Soft Power by David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori. Theory. 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 This podcast began in April 2020 as a way to engage and listen for voices in the era of COVID-19, voices sounding across social distance. In recent episodes, I also extend this work by attending to voices that operate across racial difference as well as at a remove geographically. One of the things I discussed with Dr. Donatella Galella on this episode is the way various accents deployed on the musical stage to convey racialized identity are built on expectations of how certain people should or shouldn't sound. It's like some people are thought to have funny voices, the kind of voices which can be taken up, put on, and worn by others like a garment. Some people's voices are thought to be ordinary, respectable clothing, and some people's voices are thought to be costumes, funny garb or garbling, as the case may be, from which comedy is fashioned. Which way this thinking flows depends on who is doing the thinking and the laughing, and determines whether the dialogue and songs on stage end up presenting vocal yellow face or vocal white face, for example. But the idea of a voice as a kind of a costume may also be grounded in the belief that an accent is a fixed, essentialized vocal adornment, as fixed as, say, skin color, that signals unchanging racial identity and renders racialized people as objects, the punchline of a joke. It is toward this reductive idea of vocal expression as racial essence that I want to offer as an intervention this episode's reading on sound and voice. In her book, Tropical Renditions, Making Musical Scenes in Filipino America, Christine Bacareza Balance elegantly theorizes the performance of renditions, and specifically, renditions shaped by the literal and imagined spaces of the tropics to refute the supposed primacy of an original or authentic song. Attending to what is brought into the world anew in a rendition is part of the practice she names as disobedient listening listening that revises the narrative that Filipino people referred to in early 20th century U.S. colonial policy as 
America's little brown brothers, should listen to and obey the commands of white men's voices above all. For artists in Filipino America, Christine teaches, renditions are also sounded from within the context of the burden of racial representation, the imperative to render racial identity explicitly visible and audible. This is a project which is particularly fraught for individuals with ancestry in the Philippines, a Southeast Asian Pacific Island nation that has endured Spanish and U.S. colonial rule, historically home to peoples of many different ethnicities and races that don't always map neatly onto widespread U.S. expectations of Asianness. Renditions are also always on the move, ever in the process of being remade. And so, like voices on a Zoom call, They operate in the space of the translocal, in multiple geographic places at once, or nearly at once. Apps like Zoom and Skype before it, and the long-distance phone call before that, present long familiar contours for the imperial subject and the post-colonial immigrant, those for whom the voices of loved ones and the sounds of the now dimly imagined homeland are always heard with a delay, that sonic hiccup in time. The translocal circuits of production, circulation, and reception of popular music whose scenes Balance studies in Filipino America clatter away along similar rhythms to the uploading, propagating, and downloading that Andy Evan Cohen maps in this episode as the sonic routes of data zoomed through the internet. And two, both remain vulnerable to the corporate interests that dictate and control flow of movement. So these are just some of the resonances that Balance's text has for me with the conversations on this podcast. And here is the passage from her book. Rather than challenging Western anthropological and colonial discourses, ones that presuppose culture as the property and possessions of a certain class of people, those who have culture, while others merely stand in for culture, those who are culture, Within Filipino-American studies, this popular discourse continues to uphold simplistic notions of Filipino objectification and objecthood, offering no possibility for the object's resistance. In this popular discourse, the distinction between Filipino and Filipino-American reenacts the cultural divide between homeland and diaspora, those forced to perform as cultural belongings, and those who need to possess cultural belongings. Of course, mimicry also does not fit within civilization logics and its colonial idiom. Instead, it disrupts these logics. Rather than assume mimicry as not productive of culture, tropical renditions prove it as vital to the performance and proliferation of Filipino musical life. In the classical musical sense, rendition marks the expression or interpretation of an originating written composition while this initial text, its own visual and written recording of the music, offers a template for the notes to be played and directions on how they might be played, in the end, the resounding of the music depends upon the performers themselves. Through a performer's renditions, the original is destabilized, unmoored from its fixed and entrenched position. By emphasizing performance as interpretative and transformative, Renditions betray those desires for an origin or original. Wow, what a great way to come home. Jet lag? What jet lag? 
Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground while another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around and another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. I'm so excited to welcome my guest scholar for this episode, Donatella Galella. Donatella Galella is Associate Professor in the Department of Theater, Film, and Digital Production at the University of California, Riverside. She is the author of America in the Round, Capital, Race, and Nation at Washington, D.C.'s Arena Stage from University of Iowa Press 2019, a critical history of the first professional regional theater in the U.S. Capitol. Her second book project investigates the ways that Yellowface remains producible, profitable, and pleasurable in musical productions post Miss Saigon. Professor Galella has published articles in Theater Journal, Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism, and Continuum, and she has contributed chapters to Reframing the Musical, Race, Culture, and Identity, The 60s Center Stage, and The Disney Musical On Stage and Screen. She is also known for her 2018 article in Theater Survey entitled, Being in the Room Where It Happens, Hamilton, Obama, and Nationalist Neoliberal Multicultural Inclusion. Her critical work has led to interviews with the Washington Post, the Cincinnati Inquirer, and the New York Times. And in 2019, Assembly member Jose Medina honored her as a 2019 Woman of Distinction for her service and its positive impact in California's 61st Assembly District. Thank you so much for joining me today, Donatella. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy that we met at that song stage and screen conference in Los Angeles. I know, two years ago. Two years ago we met and um, I ran up to you and said, I'm so excited to meet you. (laughs) I love that you work on musicals and race. and, uh, And then I have just kept bothering you since that time. No bother. <laughs> so uh, your scholarly research and writing does really important work on the politics and economics of U.S. performance, in particular the study of musical theater as it intersects with critical race theory. Um, and musical theater is also my area of study and practice, as you know. Um, and part of what interests me so much about it is that the sound of voices in musicals can carry and inflect such complicated histories of race and politics. So again, I really admire that you work on musicals and race. I think it's a it's a profoundly understudied area across its many sort of aspects. Um, and I'm just I'm I'm honored to know you and thankful that you do this work. Could you um, share a little bit with us as we jump in just about your overall research interests and how you became drawn to this work? Of course. So I would characterize my research interests as thinking through how white supremacy and capitalism shape and are shaped by contemporary American theater. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in looking at popular theater, so that often being musicals, and exploring why are they popular. And Mm -hmm. I'd argue that it's often because they have these apparently progressive politics to them. But at the same time, they're quite conservative in reifying all these different kinds of hierarchies. Mm. So my first book, America in the Round, started because I was an intern in the dramaturgy department in 2009 when I had just graduated from college. And uh, as you might know, I'm from New York City, so Uh I was quite spoiled about 
professional theater and quite okay. narrow-minded about it. I thought it was just Broadway and Shakespeare in the park. So <laughs> that experience in Washington, D.C. showed me that actually theater, regional theater is quite important and exists in mm -hmm. these circles of economies with New York City. And I learned that Arena Stage was one of the first theaters to develop new plays and musicals and send them to Broadway and mm -hmm. to do plays that had just come from Broadway. Sure. And it had originally started as a for-profit theater and then became a nonprofit. And I argued that Arena helped to make the blueprint for what nonprofit theaters are today as they uh -huh. try to make programming that will appeal to a lot of audience members and get those ticket sales yeah. and also appeal to theater critics to win awards and to win grants. So yeah. you're trying to get money, but you're also trying to get accolades to mm -hmm. rationalize yourself as a nonprofit theater. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. after that experience, I realized this is going to be my dissertation project, which it wasn't originally. I actually came in thinking I was going to be a specialist in the English Renaissance because I thought that's what Wow, that is a big shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my interest developed more in thinking about economics and racial politics, in part because of Occupy Wall Street happening in mm. New York during my graduate studies yeah. and because of the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And those experiences truly radicalized me and made yeah. me think about my complicity with conservative politics, uh, uh -huh. thinking we had already solved inequalities, yeah. uh, thinking uh, that African-American plays didn't matter to me, but I then realized, oh, these plays are so much more interesting, actually, and I'm tired of like, white middle-class hetero romances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so those experiences really shaped what I started to read, like Bell Hooks, for instance, and uh -huh. that totally changed the direction of my research. And then I also just started thinking a lot about casting and musical theater because musicals were, they have been the most commercially successful productions for arena stage alongside mm -hmm. specifically African-American productions. Hmm. And so I show how arena really capitalized on African-American audiences because mm -hmm. Washington DC in the 70s became about 70% black because yeah. of white flight and other yeah. structures of racism. Um, and it historically was known as a chocolate city. Yeah. And so Arena really changed its programming partially because of a, motiv a motivation for racial justice, but also to balance the, you know, the sheets. They wanted to make money yeah. and there started to be more diversity grants for this kind wow. of programming and multiculturalism, especially in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tracked that change and two of my main case studies are the musical version of A Race in the Sun, which mm -hmm. originated at Arena. Not mm -hmm. a lot of people even know that this musical happened. I didn't know that it originated at Arena, so that was, yeah. was new information for me. Yeah. Yes, so that was the world premiere. It was the, the first Black musical at Arena, and so it really, I think, started a trend in Black musicals at Arena, and mm -hmm. it sold very well. It was way mm -hmm. more popular 
than the play at that time. Uh, so yeah, I moved to Broadway, won the Tony yeah. Award, and went on a big national tour. Um, and it really helped to also diversify the audiences at Arena Stage. And another main case study for me is Arena's 2010 production of Oklahoma with yeah. a multiracial cast. And so I analyze what does that mean in the age of Obama, physically mm -hmm. sharing that space in Washington, D.C., uh, how Arena was taking a claim to Americanness being equated with racial diversity, yeah. especially at a time when the theater itself was rebranding as where American theater lives because it was the first theater in DC and then suddenly it was competing with something like 90 other theater companies. So mm -hmm. it really had to distinguish itself. And so it decided to focus on Americanness and articulating that as racially diverse and specifically foregrounding African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So I think through what does that mean and the casting, does it, are we supposed to see the characters as people of color? Are we supposed right. to be post It's always a little mysterious, right? right. And anytime right. We, we see these things, I think about it. I think last year, not too far from a year ago, I remember seeing both Hades Town on Broadway and the Disney Hercules in the park and these, you know, <laughs> Greek stories with all kinds of black people and uh, Asian people and Latino people in the cast. And we're just kind of, the sort of sense we are expected to make of that is is quite complicated. Totally, right. And sometimes it switches between modes. Sometimes a line yeah. suddenly becomes very racialized and embodied. And yeah. sometimes we're just supposed to forget difference, right? Yeah. And yeah. there are lots of implications for both inclusion, the idea that we can cast and welcome people of color only into these Western works, right? Correct. If you abide by these Correct. rules. Um, but on the other hand, it can help us maybe imagine these different worlds where there is real equality. But on the yeah. other hand, it's like, at what cost is that equality happening? And you're making me like forget about these specificities yeah. of racial difference and histories. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's so pernicious when mm -hmm. we have all these studies showing at that time, uh, pre-Trump uh, presidency, that mm -hmm. most white Americans really thought that structural racism didn't exist. Right. And so it's disconcerting to me if these folks are seeing these multiracial shows and just having that ideology confirmed. Yeah. Um, right. Even as at the same time, I totally understand for some of us seeing other people of color, people who look like us yeah. in these classic works, it can be really life-affirming. very meaningful, yeah. Right? It's so yeah. moving to me. But at the same time, I'm like, at what cost yeah. is this happening? And so that relates to the work that I've done on Hamilton and casting. I at once felt so inspired seeing this multiracial cast telling these American stories. Yeah. And on the other hand, I just kept thinking about the whitewashing of the legacies of genocide and slavery yeah. in this country. And right. I don't really see this nation as the horizon of equality, as Professor Nikhil Pal Singh says. I just think that we can have different kinds of formations that give us equality, but also let us hold on to our differences and our identities. I don't think they have to be erased. Go Donatella! So, 
Thank you. I don't know if we've also talked about this, but I'm a big Star Trek fan. And so oh, really? <laughs> yes. I don't think we have, but this is awesome. Yes, let's so go. So <laughs> I really hang on to Star Trek Deep Space Nine okay. by Avery Brooks. As, I uh, have a human in my life that uh, I'm very close to who adores that show. And so I have been uh, brought into it. I've been brought into the world of Deep Space Nine. So carry on. Yes. I'm so glad to hear this. Yes. <laughs> But, but Star Trek also provides this idea of a world, there's all kinds of, we could talk about different kinds of um, racialized futurisms, but also uh, a world in which difference is not elided, but is also celebrated. I don't know if that's related to what you're going to say. Yes, this is exactly where I was going with this. I mean, look at Benjamin Sisko's dad and his Creole restaurant. And okay, you know, you're like much deeper in the specific. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is high priestess level knowledge. Yeah. There's just, there's just a specificity of history and culture. And at the same time, they, in the Federation, they've you know gotten rid of these national boundaries. They've gotten rid of racial inequality, but they remember the histories. They hold on to them. Uh. And they've also gotten rid of capitalism and people get to do the work that they want to do. It's so wow. inspiring to me. And so that shows me that that is possible. <laughs> right. There are other models than the ones that we are fed that are we are told are the only ones for representation and multiculturalism. Right. There are different things that could be opened up. I agree. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. I want to maybe continue on to the next question, if that's okay. Of course. Yeah. So uh, as you know, the focus of this podcast is voice. Now, voice can be a lot of things. I'm hopeful that that topic will open up um, the opportunity to discuss things that aren't always considered when we think about voice or that are sidestepped. Voice training in the U.S., um, whether for actors or for singers, can be very um, non-politically engaged and sort of make all kinds of assumptions around uh, what voice is and means to everybody, right? And sort of these flattening of, of um, hierarchies and of difference. So part of what I'm interested in is a kind of specificity that we can talk about in terms of voice and cultural and racial experience, um, lived experience. And that's part of what I'm excited to talk to you about. Would you uh, say a little bit about your current project, about Yellowface and musicals, and how you think about voices, uh, speaking or singing voices in relation to this work? Of course. So I'm first thinking about how scholar Kristen R. Moon in her monograph on Yellowface defines Yellowface performance in part through dialect. And so the kind of accent that people put on when mm -hmm. they're performing a stereotypical Asian-ness is part of the characterization of thinking through what Asians sound like and it's also part of what they look like and so on, how they move. So that mm -hmm. has a long history. And for me, coming to this project about Yellowface and contemporary musical productions started in part because of having to hear and see Yellowface continuously yeah. in professional productions. So yeah. for instance, I remember seeing at Madison Square Garden a production of A Christmas Story and at the end of the musical, I've been having a great time seeing tap dancing children, but at the end, <laughs> the family goes to a Chinese restaurant yeah. and a couple of actors come out to play Chinese waiters. And it starts to become clear to me that they are not Asian, yeah. but they are performing with black wigs. 
And vocally, they're performing by singing a Christmas carol. They're singing fa la 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 la, but they're not pronouncing the L's correctly. Wow. What year was this that this production was? I think I saw this maybe in 2014 or 2015. Right. <laughs> and it was on Broadway yeah. just slightly, I think, a year before that. Yeah. And, you know, had a national tour. This is, you know, Pasek and Paul. These are yeah. people who are valorized right, in our right. field mm-hmm. and they were still doing this anyway. So these mm-hmm. actors are switching L's and R's and then people around me just started laughing uproariously and it felt like the loudest laugh in that whole production. And I don't know wow. if that's true or if that was my subjective experience, but what I remember was hearing the laughter, hearing that accent, and I yelled something in the audience. And I don't know what it was that I yelled, but I yelled something because yeah. I was so taken aback and yeah. I felt like I had to do something viscerally. And so you had a, that's interesting. You had a vocal response, right? I had a vocal to response. This. Okay. And then my now spouse shushed me. And that just made me even madder. And he's white and I'm Asian American and also white. And we left during the bows. Oh man, this sounds like one of those like (laughs) scarring moments of theater going. I mean, I remember, I remember this experience physically. And I remember we walked out and I was so upset with him and I said something like how dare you shush me when what was going on on stage was so much worse than my incivility yelling yeah. in the audience yeah and he apologized good job him <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is why we're together so yeah. okay so good. this sort of thing just kept happening I would be enjoying myself in the theater but mm. yellow face just kept happening mm. and so I felt compelled to have to do this research yeah. and so that's why this second book project is asking why does this keep on happening how does it keep on happening and then what have Asian American artists and activists been doing to try to counter yellow face mm-hmm. so if we talk specifically about voices I'll give another example of one case study that yeah. I've been researching, and that is contemporary productions of the Cole Porter musical Anything Goes. Okay, so let's go. super briefly, there are these two Chinese characters, and in the end, the implicitly white main characters take their clothing and then pretend to be Chinese yeah. at the end of the show in order to solve the mix-ups in the different romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. So in the original show in the 1930s, and even it stayed in the revised version at Lincoln Center in the 80s, they would have the white characters pretend to be Chinese or pretend to speak in Chinese. So mm-hmm. they would say things like, piak chai hoi feng montoi pafui pafui and double pafui. Or they would say things when they were in yellow face, they were pretending to be Chinese, and they would say things like, we come long way, travel far to have big talk with English gentlemen. So I argue that the Chinese characters were really only there as dramaturgical tools for the yellow face to happen later and for that comedy to happen later. And this is still preserved in a lot of productions today. 
And then I examine Arena Stage did a production in 2010 with a multiracial cast starring Corbin mm-hmm. Bloom. And they got permission to change some of the lines and to give mm-hmm. more agency to the two Chinese characters. And they cast them with Asian American actors. And I was interested in how are they going to handle the anti-Asian racism? They were very aware of it. The yeah. Molly Smith, the director from the very beginning and asked mm-hmm. for input from the Asian American actors. So some of the changes included that the characters, the two Chinese characters, John and Luke, they specifically spoke to each other with American accents. But if they were talking to any other members of the crew on this ship, they put on these mm-hmm. Chinese accents. Okay. So they were trying to, they're stowaways and they're trying to adhere to these expectations sure. of them as Chinese Americans who are treated as perpetual foreigners. Yeah. And man, it's just so much work though to try and instrumentalize these stereotypes in service of the plots about white people. Like it's just so much maneuvering. You know, <laughs> sorry. That's, it's, it's so just, much it's and exhausting. It's so not necessary. And when you analyze the original libretto, you realize they didn't even need to do the yellow face. It was just because one of the actors was known for doing a oh. yellow face shtick. So it doesn't actually help the couples get together in the end in the original, but in the Weidman yeah. rewrite, they made it more integral and so what's interesting is that the rewrite is more dramaturgically sound but in some ways it's actually more racist yeah yeah it justifies it justifies the yellow face exactly exactly it justifies it being (sighs) there and so what happened though in the arena version so they give more agency to john and luke and then they have to deal with the yellow face that's still in the script and so what they did is, first of all, they there's some of the lines, like I was saying, the we come long way, travel far to have big talk. That now becomes, mm. we have just completed an extensive peregrination in order to confer most urgently with this English gentleman. So they actually go in this whole other direction of a formal diction for you know, the characters to say. I remember hearing you speak about this last year again at the Association for Theater and Higher Education Conference, and it crossed my mind that this also aligns with um, minstrelsy practices around like dandyism and sort of the racialized other who's using big words that he really shouldn't use and that that is sort of the source of the comedy. I don't know if that totally maps. But, I mean, whether or not the character is, is um, supposed to be using less than excellent English for comic purposes or exaggeratedly excellent English for comic purposes, <laughs> like there are violences in either direction. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I think you're right that there is comedy in the incongruous juxtaposition in that you would not expect a Chinese person to sound like this. And so that's funny, but that also has these racist implications on what you think a Chinese person would sound like. And so what they did is Corbin Liu is just speaking in his like 1930s mid-Atlantic accent throughout the show. And he's doing it as he's pretending to be a Chinese person with the Chinese clothes on. And everyone on stage is like, what are you doing and saying? It doesn't register to them 
that he's Chinese and he also has this, you know, mixed race black yeah. embodiment going on. And so then Molly Smith directed the two Asian American actors playing John and Luke to whisper in the ears of Corbin Blue's character to it's so something's happening and then Corbin Blue switches and now he has this Chinese accent added on. And so when I interviewed the actors, their perspective was that there is a specific Chinese accent going on. When I interviewed the creative team about this, they saw this as an exaggerated accent showing up. And so the idea was, okay, this is yellow face, but it's like a sanctioned yellow face by the Chinese characters, yes. Asian American actors, and they have endorsed it's a it. Performance, right? They've endorsed it. Yeah. It's a performance, and I think that it does some critical work. But again, when the audience is laughing and I'm there witnessing it, yep. it's very unclear to me. Are you laughing because you think this accent is hilarious, yep. or are you laughing because, oh, it's so ridiculous that these racist people think these things about Chinese people, yeah. and that Carbon Blue is playing a Chinese person? So yeah, so well, let's let's that. you know. I have my doubts as to whether or not people are doing complex analyses in their heads as to the cleverness, you know, that now says they should laugh, right? So interesting. So so those are the aspects about Mm -hmm. uh, voice to some extent that I've been analyzing for the Yellow Face Project. Thank you. Thank you for walking us through that. These questions that you're bringing up about how are people making artistic decisions about how to stage actors of different races in relation to one another, these questions are not going to go away. I mean, certainly the conversations happening nationally and internationally uh, to some extent around the racial reckoning in this country right now make it clear that these questions are not going to go away um, and that people will continue to need sharp analyses and and uh, education <laughs> and in order to sort of know the histories and know the fraughtness that we're entering into. I have to say, I personally am more interested in um, new musicals, <laughs> which as a, as a writer of musicals, I guess is probably why. I think there are opportunities to kind of pay attention to people who are writing new stories about what it means to be Asian in the U.S. today or in historical context that are not just framed by these historical shows that require so much um, maneuvering, as we were talking about, in order to try and make them less terrible than they could be. <laughs> Definitely. So. And I think that brings us to Soft Yeah. So speaking of new musicals, let's talk about uh, Soft Power, which is uh, a musical I know you have studied in a lot of detail. This musical by David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori, which uh, was presented at Center Theater Group in Los Angeles two years ago. And then I believe at some other places on the West Coast before coming to New York City's public theater this past fall in 2019. I know you saw this show in multiple iterations. And of course, there is now a wonderful cast album that was released from Ghostlight Records in April of 2020. So let's talk about this Soft Power cast album. What do you listen for and and how are you hearing the voices um, in this show and in the cast album in relation to your research? Yeah, I think I first need to give a bit of a summary of what Soft Power is about. And so it is first a play in which David Henry Wong is a character and he is being commissioned 
to write some artistic production. It's different depending on the version uh, mm -hmm. for China to try to make China look good and gain soft power. And then there is a meditation on the king and I, and it turns out that is part of a campaign rally for Hillary Clinton because this is prior to the 2016 presidential election mm -hmm. and the characters specifically articulate that musical theater emotionally and ideologically manipulates all of us so a show like The King and I is haunting and beautiful and moving but it also reifies orientalism so mm -hmm. That is the setup, and then David Henry Wong gets stabbed in the neck, probably as an anti-Asian hate crime, which mm -hmm. has dramatically increased since the era of COVID. Yeah. And this did, in real life, happen to David Henry Wong. Mm -hmm. And as he's bleeding out, the play bursts into a musical called Soft Power, that revisits a lot of what we've already just seen in the play. And now it kind of flips the script on the king and I and imagines what if that media executive who commissioned David Henry Wong, Choi Xing, what if he is like the I and Hillary is the king? And yeah. so he's like the rational person and that China's now gained dominance and Hillary Clinton in the United States are seen as backwards and needing of education. And this musical is imagined to have been written 50 years into the future when China has gained that domination and gained that soft power. And it's in the style of a Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. And so the musical itself is doing this cultural work of emotional and ideological manipulation. You just did that so well. It's not a simple show to to give a concise summary of. So yes, carry Thank on, you. please. <laughs> I hope that that was clear. And so with the cast album, first of all, I wondered, do people understand the context for what they're listening to? And with regards to voices and accents, Conrad Rikamora is playing Shui Xing, this Chinese executive mm -hmm. who's embarking to the United States. And he's using his regular American accent throughout the whole course of the musical. But mm -hmm. then when we're in the hospital with David Henry Wong, suddenly on the castle, you hear that he has this very distinct Chinese accent. And so I think that's really interesting to distinguish yeah the musical and then when we're back in the play the sort of dreamed musical versus yes. the play that bookends it yeah exactly in listening to the album uh, you and i had spoken about do people know that it's an almost all asian american cast yeah. because most of them aside from conrad Rikamora and francis jew who's playing david henry Wong, mm -hmm. they are asian american actors pretending to be white americans for the most part and one of the ways that they do that is vocally and musically. So mm -hmm. you'll hear on the album that they have these exaggerated whitened accents. <laughs> so for instance, when they go to McDonald's, they'll have a character be like, dudes, welcome to McDonald's. And so you have this kind of like California yeah. surfer 
accent or you'll have other people put on these exaggerated cowboys. I think that's Ray Lee. Is that Ray Lee, the actor who does that bit? I mean, I don't want to mix things up, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I think what that's doing is an array of literally all over the map, white American accents from all different time periods. And I think that that's supposed to be in contrast to whenever white Americans do Asian accents. And it's just generic. It's not specific to a certain place or time. And so again, it's like flipping that on its head, especially when Asians are so often seen as faceless, as part of hordes, as people who aren't even seen as people. So Mm. it's just such, again, this brilliant and hilarious way of turning that hierarchy upside down. Yes. So smart. Such a smart show. Uh, Complicated, complicated, but I'm excited about it to do this inverted King and I with sort of talking about contemporary globalization and also, you know, soft power and all its, I don't even know if I really knew what that term was. Could you just maybe say a little bit about what soft power? (laughs) Yeah. So soft power was a term invented by a scholar named Joseph Nye pretty recently. And He uses it to describe the kind of influence that a country has through its cultural productions and exports in order to try to change other countries' view of that country and to try to shape policy. So this is in opposition to, for instance, military might. That is a very different kind Mm -hmm. of power. And so soft power can be this more subtle way of shaping opinions and spreading your influence. There's a long history, obviously, of the United States doing this as part of its control of the world and as part of diplomatic relations. We saw this especially clearly in the Cold War with the USSR and these competing different, like different kinds of cultural exports, again, Mm -hmm. to try to sway people's opinions. I feel like I've made you give a giant lecture and I want to make sure we can wrap up soon. Can I just ask you, a question before we close about sure. this idea of vocal white face. I feel like I heard you use that phrase, vocal white face, in relation to what the actors are doing in soft power, um, as you mentioned, sort of like in that McDonald's moment, or adopting these kind of exaggeratedly uh, white accents, accents of whiteness from different regions of America and different historical moments, but specifically to perform whiteness vocally. Am I understanding that correctly? And is that how you use that term? Yeah, so I'm quite influenced by scholar Phaedra Shatart Carpenter in her book, Coloring Whiteness. Yeah. She thinks about white face as performed by African-Americans. And so for me, there's this distinction between just playing a white person versus doing white face. So if you're kind of just playing a white person, for instance, if you're performing in Tartuffe, if you're doing Moliere, you're playing this French person, then you're not doing white face. There's just- As as an actor of a different race. Right, you're kind of sincerely playing that character who is implicitly white and implicitly we're supposed to forget about race. But Uh white face, vocal white face, is specifically about trying to send up whiteness and point out that white is also a race that too often just goes unmarked. And it's a way to try to satirize and subvert white supremacy. So it's not an innocent kind Uh of project that I think we talked about how I think playing white characters 
has these elements of inclusion to them and assimilation versus mm -hmm. whiteface is i think a lot more radical to really draw attention to white nonsense okay. and uh, through that kind of exaggeration and the friction between races exactly exactly uh. on the one hand it's possible that through the humor you can make a more critical point and make people listen more on the other hand, I totally can envision that these whiteface performances can offend white audiences and make them quite upset. It's not mm -hmm. a coincidence that most of the white people to whom I've spoken about soft power don't really like soft power. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it, it troubles them. But the last component is maybe this is a show and the whiteface is for me. And I finally get to be at the center of this and I get to enjoy myself yeah. and I don't have to fear and brace myself for the yellow face that's about to come when I experience these other musicals. It's just so pleasurable and again, like subversive for me to see vocal whiteface. Amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through all of that for spending some time. It's been just a pleasure to speak with you and to hear your thoughts on voices and voicing um, in these ways. So thank you. Thank you so much. I love speaking with you. Join our family, become our allies. We'll give you green energy to clean your skies. Save the earth before it dies as together we rise. Other countries, they're already joining this Silk Road? Ever since the ballot box chose your new president, they're all coming our way. So is it already too late for us? How can we prove we deserve to be part of the future? I'm so pleased to welcome Andy Evan Cohen, who is joining me vocally as our guest practitioner for this episode. Andy Evan Cohen composes and designs sound and video for theater, film, and other media, with over 50 stage, TV, and film credits, including productions off-Broadway, internationally, regionally, on PBS, UN Radio, and more. He has been the recipient of many New York Theater nominations and awards from the NYIT, the New York International Fringe Festival, and Planet Connections. As a composer, his music has been performed at theaters and by classical ensembles all over the world. His recent projects have involved designing sound for off-Broadway premiere plays and editing a podcast series for the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. With degrees from Oberlin and the Manhattan School of Music, Andy teaches sound design and technical theater in the CUNY system in New York City. He is also a founding member of the New York-based theatrical production company, Roly Poly Productions, providing creative, technical, and theatrical management services. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for hosting me. I was trying to remember how I know you and where I met you, and I, and I really couldn't remember. I feel like it was one of those composer projects along the line. It could have been a composer project. It's also likely that we just have many friends in common. <laughs> We've seen each other a lot. I, I've noticed on Facebook when we've communicated, yeah. lots of people that we know in common have also commented on the post. So true. And in fact, just the other day, or I guess this was, who knows, the other day, the other week, time is amorphous. But I was wondering online about who is talking to tech companies about reverse engineering platforms like Zoom for more than one voice at a time. Because I don't know how this works. I just know that 
it's hard for singers and things like if we wanted to do musicals on Zoom, which people are, people are writing operas for Zoom, etc., and theatrical performances. But the challenge is that you can pretty much just hear one voice at a time. And I thought, well, how do we get around this? This is something that tech people, the tech minds I'm sure already are thinking about. And you mentioned that you were seeing uh, some chat about this um, in the music tech community and that it has to do with compression algorithms. What What is it that you're seeing or that you know or can help us learn about why Zoom only pretty much allows for one voice at a time and how and if that might change? The easy answer to this is that Zoom was developed as a conferencing application. Yep. Zoom, as well as Skype or any of the other competitors, uh, WebEx has a, I think Cisco makes a program called WebEx that's very similar. Mm -hmm. They all around the business platform that quickly got adapted into the teaching platforms by teachers because it's a great way to have a lecturer giving a presentation to an audience. So all of these platforms were designed around one person being the focus of the platform, Mm -hmm. do the best quality audio and video for that one person, and stream it to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Then COVID-19 happens, and now we need some way of doing more interactive programs. And Zoom or WebEx or or Skype or any of these programs aren't well suited for that. So it's one thing to see what the limitations are. The longer and more difficult challenge is what can you do to overcome those limitations? Yeah, yeah. How Zoom works or how any of these conferencing software works is that think of it as a three-part process. I say something to you and the file of the audio and the video gets uploaded to Zoom's servers. Mm -hmm. Zoom servers then propagate that to whoever is on the chat. Mm -hmm. And then from that propagation, it gets downloaded to each person in the client who's responding to that chat. Mm -hmm. The result being is is that there's three places to introduce what's called latency. Mm -hmm. Latency is just a fancy way of saying lag or delay of time. So between the upload, the propagation, and then the download, Mm -hmm. there's any number of things that can happen. If I'm talking over a Wi-Fi connection using a phone, my upload speeds can be pretty slow Mm -hmm. because Wi-Fi is not designed for fast upload speeds. Okay. if Zoom has problems with their servers, their propagation speeds are gonna slow down. Mm -hmm. This is one of the issues that we have in our campus situation with a program called Blackboard. I don't know if you use Blackboard at your university. I've used Uh, it before. We we use Canvas at Northwestern, but I I used Blackboard at NYU, yeah. Yeah, with those companies, they weren't designed for the sheer amount of usage that they're now getting. And maybe I should just say, in case somebody's not in academia, that these are the websites that uh, sort of like the course managers for classes where, or maybe yeah, maybe I should let you say what they are, because <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, that that's pretty much it. It's a system for online content. It's a system for online classes. Mm-hmm. And it's great when the online class is just, I'm teaching one online class per week to a handful of students. Mm-hmm. Blackboard and Canvas are great with that. Mm -hmm. It's when it's every class is now 24-7 online, constantly being used, that they need to have the the amount of servers that can handle that material, Mm -hmm. and they just simply don't. Okay. And Zoom has been on the quick end. The reason why they've been so quickly adopted is that as they saw demand, they just kept building more servers in Uh and just adding more space so they can keep up with demand. Okay. And companies that haven't been able to do that haven't lasted as long and they've been dropping out. Uh So Zoom, that's the reason why Zoom right now is the number one 
choice uh-huh. for this sort of work. That's so helpful to, to sort of know that. I mean, I know that Zoom is everywhere, but I wouldn't have known that that is kind of the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll soon see other rivals to Zoom, Cisco WebEx or whoever, mm-hmm. will then say, well, if since Zoom's the number one, we don't want to be number two, they'll start adding servers, they'll start adding features, they'll start doing things mm-hmm. to get more clients. And then Zoom will have to then compete with them. And right. now we've got a whole online streaming race. Yeah. And the wild card is that you even have video game platforms like Switch that are coming because people are saying, well, why not use that? Why yeah. not use Discord? And what's happening is, is that since the gamers have their system for online streaming, yeah. why not just, instead of using it for uh, role-playing video games, use it for delivering content yeah. for lectures, presentations, performances. performances. So we may well be at the place where the next big item in the next few years could be a video gaming console that also handles online streaming for all your classes at school. Wow. I knew that there must be something like this in the works, but I, I don't have a window into this world. And that is so, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. So to get, finish up how Zoom is working, yeah. we're, we've, I'm uploading right now as we're doing the Zoom conversation, uploading audio, uploading video. Mm-hmm. Zoom is then propagating the audio and video to you. Mm-hmm. And then you're downloading it from the zoom servers i see and all of these and all of these things are happening at whatever rates that we're connected Mm -hmm. uh since i do a lot of online work i have a fairly robust high speed internet connection i have a direct connection by ethernet Mm -hmm. which is the fastest way right now to do it Mm -hmm. ethernet a hardline connection is always going to be faster than a wi-fi connection Mm -hmm. and that just has to do with the limitations of how wi-fi works the frequencies that Wi-Fi works on and the various Wi-Fi companies and their bandwidth and what they are allowing. Okay. So if you're told, for example, to use an Ethernet connection, it's because they're going to be more robust, more reliable, mm-hmm. and capable of delivering higher quality and higher content of audio. Yeah. Uh, the future for sound design and theater has been with platforms like Dante. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a digital distribution system for sound and soon to be video content. Mm-hmm. And the now common thing is for audio engineers to set up everything using digital Dante, where everything is now ethernet connections, ethernet from the computer to the mixing board, to the amplifier, to the speakers. And that's letting you stream up to 512 channels of audio, Wow, which is a, a ridiculous yeah. amount, especially when you're thinking like a big, musical uh-huh. may have a hundred channels and there Dante is letting you have up to 512. Okay. Okay. So there may be ways to kind of have these virtual performances. I mean, they already are, people are doing them, but, and I guess any, anything that I've seen that has to do with musicians performing at the same time, it does, I, I haven't understood it all entirely, but it seems like it's often like you have to have your own ethernet connection like if it's like uh, jam kazam or like some of these other things where you have to have like certain kinds of gear um but in theory we could get to a point where we can have a choir with people singing at all different points around the globe and it all being streamed simultaneously yes but that's going to take a lot of development of hardware and software to get to that point okay because right now like with my classes 
very few people are able to have their own Ethernet connections. Yeah. A lot of people are using Wi-Fi, right. which is not fast enough for that sort of, of setup. Okay. The other thing is that you'll often see a lot of videos, the famous Hamilton video where everyone's singing from it, uh -huh. which are actually all done in post-production. Yeah, no, Those see, that's, actually not, yeah. that's the thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I actually had somebody ask me online, I guess this was on the thread we, we were both on, um, well, what about all these choirs and these videos I'm singing? And it's all edited together after the fact, right? So it's not like people are yes. just logging onto Zoom and then the choir sounds. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because what's happening is that everyone with their own connection, now everyone's at a slightly different speed. Yeah. If we both have fast Ethernet connections, great, then we can easily communicate back and forth with each other pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But if you're on a phone on Wi-Fi and I'm on a fast Ethernet, it's going to take longer for you to get my information mm -hmm. than for me to get yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the result is that you're going to get a delay between the two. So you're going to get the sense of, I will play a chord on the piano and then a second later you hear it. Yeah. And that's not going to work for a live performance. Right. What I think is really important and I didn't realize about what it is you're mapping out here is that, and I don't totally know what compression algorithms are, but you've mentioned to me <laughs> that yeah. the reason that you can only hear one Zoom speaker at a time has to do with compression algorithms. Yes. So let's start with a little bit of an understanding of compression. Okay. This is something that is used all the time for anything with sound. Mm -hmm. If you hear music on the radio or streamed off of an Alexa type thing, mm -hmm. that music's been compressed. Mm -hmm. It's being delivered to you in a compressed format. Compression used properly is an important tool for all audio. Right. So compression is you have the lowest of the lows in terms of dynamic range. You have the highest of the highs. Mm -hmm. You want to then have the two of them be as close to each other as possible. Mm -hmm. And if something's not compressed, I will demonstrate what bad compression will, or no compression will sound. I'll be, and my sound will slowly get and soft. Hear how my my voice is getting louder and softer? Yeah. There's too much dynamic range. Uh -huh. Dynamic range, meaning volume, right? Exactly. Uh -huh. By dynamic range, we're talking about dynamics, like musical dynamics, yeah. forte versus piano, mm -hmm. the volume of the sound. Mm -hmm. Now, in a live orchestra, that's great. We love the fact that we can hear the end of the Haydn Farewell Symphony and just go down to two solo violins playing piano. Mm -hmm. It sounds gorgeous. Mm -hmm. But if you were to have a recording of that, those two violins are going to get lost if you're listening to the recording while jogging down a street with traffic going by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they're just simply too soft. Mm -hmm. So you need the compression to make it louder mm -hmm. so that you can hear the louds and the softs as well as possible. Okay. So Zoom needs to do this in order to deliver the audio so that you can hear things clearly. Mm -hmm. If Zoom was not compressing it, then the softer tones of my voice would easily be dropped mm -hmm. or you would have a hard time getting all the data of the audio as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Because compression is also data compression. Yeah. A zip file is compressing data. It's taking yeah. a large amount of data and putting it into a small packet. So if we are to say, for example, compression algorithms in relation to Zoom, does that encompass both of those things or, or they're used? Yes. Oh, it does. Okay. It's encompassing both of them. It's the compression for audio, which is something that you can set within the Zoom settings. Uh -huh as well as the data compression needed to get the information as quick as possible over those transmission networks, okay. upload, propagating, and download. Okay. And the algorithms are telling the computer to do things to maximize this. Mm -hmm. 
For example, with Zoom, one easy way to get audio is by eliminating sounds and tones that we don't need. Mm -hmm. The human voice with speaking voice has certain frequencies. Frequencies are the equivalent of pitches mm -hmm. as for those who haven't had this sort of audio background, sure, I can sure. explain. Uh, for example, when an oboe plays the tuning note A, mm -hmm. they're playing the tuning note A at a frequency of 440, 440 hertz. Mm -hmm. Hertz is how you measure it. Mm -hmm. So at 440 hertz, we're hearing the oboe tuning note A. Mm -hmm. If you start going lower than 440, you start getting lower frequencies. You get lower notes. Mm -hmm. You get within the range out of the oboe into the bassoons and the cellos and then the double basses and then the low end of the piano. Mm -hmm. If you're going above that tone, then you're going higher tones into, into higher oboes, then flutes, then piccolos, and eventually you're going outside the range of music and more into the range of sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The human speaking voice works best within a, a range of about 250 to about 4,000 to 6,000 on the top mm -hmm. part. What that means that if I'm trying to get my voice out to you to sound as best as possible, I don't need anything outside of that range. If it's below 250 or below 200, let's just eliminate all that data. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get to you. Mm -hmm. If it's above 6,000, we don't need that data. All it's gonna sound like is like really high buzzy sounds. So let me interrupt you really quickly because I think this might also have to do with one of the challenges of teaching voice over Zoom because yeah. we have certain kinds of resonances in singing voices that it's not, where it's not just about the communication of information but there may be sort of like I don't even know I'm, my acoustics I'm not up on this but like there are overtones or, or the sound is vibrating at multiple frequencies is that? Yes. Okay and so yes. if there some of those are sliced off in the, in the Zoom context, then you may not, as a singing teacher, may not hear all of the full resonance of the voice, the way it sounds in the room where the person is singing. Correct. And that's one of the big challenges of teaching, mm -hmm. which is that it's great for Zoom to cut off frequencies that are significantly below 200 hertz. Mm -hmm. It's not so great when you've got a great Russian bass baritone <laughs> who's voice tones actually use some of those lower frequencies yeah. and when you lose that like in boris gudinov then you lose a big chunk of the opera yeah yeah of course yeah and and similarly with with singers is that the higher frequencies are used for diction mm -hmm. your fricto your frictives your plosives mm -hmm. of everything that you use to teach voice for how to pronounce words mm -hmm. That is all on the higher end. Mm -hmm. And since we're only keeping so much of the higher end and eliminating others, that means that some of that is going to get lost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you're not over enunciating, you may lose certain things. Like, yeah. like if, I, if I wanted to say the word lose, I'm going to want to put an extra bit of the sibilant sound at the end of lose so that it comes clearly through Zoom. Ah. In a live room, I wouldn't need to do it so much because you would be able to pick it up because you'd be hearing more of those frequencies. That's so useful to know. Wow. Okay, so if we accept that compression is a necessary factor of just making this all work, can you talk me through this thing about why uh, this brings up the question about equitable access to the internet? Yep. Okay. Well, because... This goes into that upload, propagating, download, yeah. which is that everyone's working at different speeds. Mm -hmm. 
that means that everyone is now facing some restrictions in what those speeds very well may be. Mm -hmm. Zoom right now, if I'm talking Zoom over a phone, yeah. is sending a single mono signal. Mm -hmm. I can send a stereo signal if we wanted to have a much richer sound field of music being sent over Zoom, if I'm doing it over a computer. Okay. Zoom will eventually be letting you use stereo over a phone mm -hmm. because the next generation of phones are going to come with stereo microphones. Apple's planning to do that uh -huh. in one of their newest iPhone releases. Android will soon be doing it. Okay. Very likely every other manufacturer will too. Uh -huh. So if you have stereo microphones, you can soon start sending stereo signals unless you can't because of the data caps. I because see. stereo signal means more, more data. data that will eat through your allotted amount from your phone company so much more quickly. Yep. Okay. And it also it also means data limitations based upon where you are. There have been numerous cases where a city has said it would be great for our city to have our own broadband or Wi-Fi system set up so that anyone can go into the library and access broadband or Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. And big tech companies don't like that because that means that the city is now providing a service that, that they, they want to be charge able to charge for. people. Yeah. And the tech companies are lobbying the state's governments to shut down the cities. Mm -hmm. And this is something that happened recently in Kentucky, okay. where under the previous Republican administration, several cities were setting up their own Wi-Fi or broadband systems, and the legislature there made it illegal for cities to do that because they took money from the big tech companies and they didn't want to lose the money. Wow. This is an example of Republicans. You can see this happening with the Democrats as well in California. Mm -hmm. This is an equal opportunity, money enriching scheme, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up because I regret that I'm a little bit ill-informed about this, but I know that equitable access to the internet is something that we all need to be fighting for because it's yes. it's perpetuating, especially right now, it's perpetuating such inequities. Um, I care about voices. I care about who has access to the sounds that come across the internet, and so it's just a good reminder that this is something we have to we have to keep at the forefront um, as as all these changes keep happening. Yes. So this is the part of my podcast where I ask a practitioner to lead an exercise. Do you have any any practical guidance for how to optimize Zoom or whatever it is someone is using in relation to sound and specifically voice? Yes. One of the things that Zoom lets you do is change some of your settings. Okay. And if I click on where the sound is, where the mute button normally is, mm -hmm. for me, it's to the bottom left corner of the Zoom app. Yep. And when I click on the arrow next to it, I see something that says audio settings. Mm -hmm. I can go into audio settings and within it, you can see microphone levels. I can set it to automatically adjust the microphone volume, mm -hmm. which is right now how it's currently set. Mm -hmm. And Zoom is using its own compression algorithms to measure my voice. Mm -hmm. Like right now, if I'm looking at my Zoom audio settings with automatic adjust set to be on, checked on, mm -hmm. if I move closer to the microphone, I can watch that as my voice is getting louder, this, the input volume moves slightly to the left because it's reducing my volume wow. to compensate for my voice getting louder. Okay. I can turn that off and play around with what sounds best for my voice. If I'm a soft speaker, I may want to turn off automatically adjust and then manually adjust the level until it looks like a really good level with all the bars 
as hit as possible without it constantly going into the red. And within this, you can also, within the audio settings, there's yeah. advanced settings. Okay. My version gives me a checkbox that says show in meeting option to enable original sound. Uh-huh. This is Zoom's fancy way of saying enable original sound is Zoom saying don't use Zoom's automatic compression settings. Use the ones that your setup has. Okay. If you're just talking on a phone, you may not have much of a setup and you may want to use Zooms better. Uh-huh. But if you're talking on a microphone that's built for podcasting, the microphone may be doing a lot of the things that Zoom isn't and the microphone may be doing it better. Uh-huh. So you can, if you click enable original sound, that will turn off Zoom's settings for volume level adjustments and background noise adjustments. Mm -hmm and let your microphone that you're recording pick it up for you. Thank you, Andy, that was fantastic. I'm so grateful. Uh, thank you again for coming on and, and doing this chat for the podcast. Glad to do it. That's it, thanks for listening. I hope you'll stay safe, stay strong, and return for my final episode of the summer when I plan to host sociolinguistics professor Anne Harper Charity Hudley and voice coach Linda Gates. Until then. Ooh.